morning, Glory and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is time for the Hour of Hillsdale. The Hillsdale Dialogues have become a centerpiece of the week for many people. It's the last hour of broadcast each week when I join with either Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale University, or one of his fine faculty colleagues to review the news of the week and one of the great works of the Western canon. We are in the Bible, have been for a couple of weeks, will be for a couple more weeks as we continue on with these very popular podcasts. If you want to Listen to those that you have missed. They are all available at hughforhillsdale.com. There are links at hughhewitt.com. These podcasts are absolutely free. All you have to do is sign up, and at the same time, you can sign up for the other online courses that Hillsdale offers. You'll hear the word MOOG, the massive online open course. Well, that was actually invented by Hillsdale with their Constitution courses last year. And now these podcasts pushing virtual learning even further into the easy accessibility category. Dr. Arn, welcome. Good to talk to you. How are you, Hugh? I'm good. I'm good. We've got a lot to talk about in our first segment because the State of the Union uh, occurred this week, and we've got a filibuster underway about Secretary uh, uh, Senator Hagel and becoming Secretary Hagel. So before we go back to the Old Testament, let's talk about the rather biblically length uh, speech we heard from President Obama on Tuesday night. What did you make of that? Uh, wasn't it awful? Yes. <laughs> no, it was. Uh, it was good. Uh, I, my, my view is Obama is getting better. That is to say, better a better performer. Uh, Obama's vice. Uh, he has many, but one of them is he's imperative. He lectures he looks hard at you he tells you what you're going to have to do and he's not really very good at explaining uh but he's better now than he was he's a little more relaxed uh he doesn't seem mechanical which was a vice to which he was given i've never thought him eloquent the way you think of abe lincoln or somebody eloquent for one thing he doesn't write the words but i thought he was strong and confident through the thing and of course i hate that but I thought it. <laughs> yeah. But he is not winsome, and this is to the advantage of those who are not aligned with his program. I think so. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's, he's revolutionary. He's doing huge things, but he's not beloved widely. And uh, I don't think he helped himself with that. State, State of the Union messages themselves have become awful occasions because... Uh, if you just look at it in perspective, I used to do this with, uh, with uh, I used to do this with you on your show, Life and Times, years ago. Um, if you you can go back and compare Obama's fourth to George Washington's fourth, and I, I I remember George Washington's fifth because it was significant, and because I used to compare it to Bill Clinton's significant fifth. George Washington talks about eight things in his fifth inaugural. Bill Clinton, in the one that says the days of big government are over forever after he lost the 94 election, I stopped counting at 70. (laughs) And so Obama, in the structure of the speech, Obama is going to do everything. I mean, everything, right? Everybody's going to have a really great education, and everybody's going to have, have, you know, power, and we're not going to pollute any at all. And all of this is going to be budget neutral and the one-third of total federal expenditures that are not paid for right now are going to be paid for with a little more tax increases on the rich so it's kind of a fairyland except it's got teeth behind it it's it's got teeth because he has such an expansive view of the federal power and his authority to use it unilaterally i 
I read afterwards, I don't know if you know uh, Samuel Gregg over at the Acton Institute. He's not far removed from you. He's in Ann Arbor. I know the Acton people really well, although I don't know him. Well, Dr. Gregg wrote a piece in National Review saying, I wonder what the framers would think of the glad handing and the hoopla and the media network trained on the uh, State of the Union. In other words, that it really isn't uh, a report. It is more a summoning. What do you think of that, Dr. Larry Arn? Uh, so very much. Um because the, the framers had two kinds of restraint that Obama does not show. One of them, and the most important one, is of themselves. And so when George Washington gives his annual message to Congress, which, by the way, he wrote to them. He, he did go one time and give it and didn't like the experience, so he just wrote it. When he gave his annual message, it isn't about him, and it isn't about his grand plans. It's about the affairs of the nation within the confines of the Constitution. And when it becomes eloquent and high, it becomes eloquent and high about all of us and how the sum total of our virtues and our good works make the nation great. And so it's a very different posture. And, of course, it proceeds to provide a very different kind of government. There is also across the Atlantic, there's a different approach. The queen gives a speech, or the king when it's a king, that has been written for her or for him by the government, and she simply delivers it. Is there an advantage to that? Well, that's uh, the, uh, so my friend Winston Churchill, whom we'll get to one of these days, I'll bet, um, <laughs> he, he was a monarchist and a imperialist and a strong believer in consent of the governed. So he brought all those things together, right? And that means the, the queen would reign but not rule. Well, what happens in the speech to the throne is that the prime minister and his cabinet decide what they're going to do, and they write it up in a speech for her, and she's got to read it. But it changes the world that she has to read it. That That is to say, she's going to sit there on her throne, and... And she's going to wear her crown and her robes and go, you know, there's a, if you know what the Palace of Westminster looks like, that's where Big Ben is. And she goes in the House of Lords side, and the commons are, are summoned, but their chamber is very uh, scrupulously not entered by anyone not a member from the House of Lords side. And they're invited to come and hear the monarch. Well, the point is, those forms... Even today, even in the age of socialism in Britain, you know, or what the bureaucracy is what they got now instead of socialism, exercises some restraint on what is said, and that's a good thing. Well, there are forms at the State of the Union in the in the appearance of the generals and the justices, yeah. uh, which are that used to restrain this president. One of his most interesting precedents was to criticize the court with it sitting there, hopeless and helpless. Uh, he's, he's not one for restraints, Dr. Larry Arn. No, no. He, uh, and, you know, he's, he's given to one of, the, one of the most indicative and dangerous things he likes to say is, you know, we need a law about something, and if Congress won't act, then I will act. Yes. We can't wait. In other words, and see, that's, that's lawlessness. And, you know, I... I I was just in Washington last night, and uh, I was talking to young Paul Ray, a graduate of Harvard Law School and one of my students, and really great kid. 
and he's working on an S- a Securities and Exchange Commission case right now with a big law firm in D.C. And and for like the fourth time yesterday, I heard somebody who's trained in the law say, this action is simply lawless. And that is to say, they just did it because they can. And it doesn't matter that the written words of the law uh, forbid it. And that goes on all the time now. And if it's not stopped, and it must be stopped and therefore will be stopped, it is going to breed lawlessness everywhere in the society. That is, in fact, why our friends at the Pacific Legal uh, Foundation, our friends at the Alliance Defending Freedom, our friends at the Mountain States Legal Foundation, our friends at the Capital Legal Foundation, live in the great one, and I talk about this all the time, they are constantly, they need more and more lawyers. It's It's because the... Uh, there's like a scene in the Lord of the Rings when the orcs come over the wall and the, the, yeah. the regulations are coming over the wall and it's, they're surrounding us. That's it. And, and you know, in the end, by the way, this, these problems are not going to be sorted out in the courts. They're going to be sorted out in the court of public opinion. And we're going to have to produce somebody who can explain what the fundamental issues are and stake his political career on them. Did Rubio begin to do that with a minute to the break in his response uh, to the State of the Union? I thought he was really good. Of course, it could have been better produced and all that. But uh, I, I, I have one criticism of it, and that is we've got to stop talking about class, any class. We've got to repudiate the idea of class. Our mutual friend Tom Cotton would do that if he got to give that address, which I hope he will one day. But Rubio was excellent. And what a fine man he is, and blessings upon him. Well, to the Old Testament then, time for the Hillsdale Dialogue to do its hard work after the break. I remind everyone, these weekly chats with Dr. Arn or one of his colleagues are all available online at hillsdale.edu. There's a special page set up if you want to sign up for these podcasts. When you go running then on Saturday morning, you can run to the sound of the great works and a great teacher telling you about them. And I'm perfectly ignorant of what we're covering. And so I am I am you. I am willing to play that part. And you will find these fascinating. All you have to do is sign up for them at HughForHillsdale.com, H-U-G-H-4, F-O-R, Hillsdale.com. Or there's a link at HughHewitt.com. I'll be right back with Larry Orange. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the hour, America. Once a week, I sit down with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College in Michigan, or one of his colleagues from that great college, and we talk about one or more great works of the Western canon. We have for the past two weeks been, actually three weeks now, in the early phases of the Old Testament. Today's program is devoted to getting us through the balance of that into the New Testament, which means we've got to cover, oh, about 1,300 to, what, about 700 years, Dr. Arn? Something like that. All right. Yeah. So, <laughs> 900 years, about 900 years. 900 years. Now, I, I guess we're going to do this in three segments by covering a couple of books at a time and, and just getting a sense of why people ought to read them. Let's begin with what is generally believed to be the oldest book of the Bible, Job. Why bother? Well, Job is a, isn't it a great story, and you know what happens in it. That is to say, one of the angels, Satan, not fallen— uh, says he's been looking around, and he sees this guy, you know, the condition of things. And God says, what about my servant Job, who's really somebody great? And Satan says, well, he's very prosperous, isn't he? Easy to love the Lord. Which, you know, by the way, is in the, in the, the, among the Jews, they, they fail. 
you know, these hard-duty chosen people fail sometimes because they're poor and sometimes because they're rich. Yep. <laughs> and, but Job is not one to fail because he's rich. And uh, God permits Satan to afflict him. And does he not afflict him? I mean, his family is destroyed and his property is taken. And eventually he himself is uh, personally afflicted with boils and rashes and all kinds of terrible stuff. And so he falls from a state of, uh, of earthly beatitude, as far as you can get it, to utter misery. And then he's subjected to long arguments with friends of his about how he's at fault. And it's a shame on him for not admitting it. And, uh, and then he does fall, Joseph, uh, Job, finally, to saying that he's unjustly punished. And there then ensues a conversation with God. And I'm going to interrupt for a second and say there's a point about that that's worth mentioning. And that is, as the Old Testament goes on, God's uh, uh, communications with men change. For a time, he talks directly to the rulers. For a time, he talks through the prophets. And then for a time, only through the scripture and the story that it tells. So in a way, he's uh, withdrawing in some ways as the Old Testament goes on. And of course, Christians think then reappearing very dramatically, but we'll get to that. Well, God talks to, to Job. And he says to him, who are you after all? You know, because I made these mountains and I made everything. And what have you had to do with that? I made you. And so Job recovers the, f the fullness of his humility, which he had a great deal of, and, uh, and, and apologizes. And then Job is restored and his friends are made to go and and seek his intercession or they'll be punished he has to forgive them because they have accused him falsely of of uh faults that he did not commit and so the whole thing is a, is a great story i mean do you think i i do when when you read the book of job which is a grim and beautiful both uh do you think you know is it, aren't you in the back of your mind seeking explanation for your trials, whatever they are? Yes, and then you come up against chapter 38. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? <laughs> Have you ever given orders to the morning? <laughs> oh, Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> oh, it is. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever turned on a student. I doubt that you have. But, but <laughs> if you've turned on a student, you get just the tiniest inclination. Or if you've been rounded on in any argument. Yeah. Uh, or if Churchill had ever rounded on some foe, yeah. you get just an intimation of what this is. The tiniest <laughs> intimation. <laughs> It, it is uh, it is awesome and and of course it's 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 lessons are hard to draw because they are the central lessons we need to know as we think about God and our life here on earth and does God provide for us does God protect us we pray for him to do so but not always does he do so and and when he doesn't what's the cause and what Job tells us is there can be more than one cause. It can be because we've done wrong. 
it can be because trials are sent upon us as a providence, which is what happens to Job. And then a third thing, and uh, you know, this here I'll bring in my favorite modern biblical teacher, C.S. Lewis. Of course, remember that the universe is so disposed that we have freedom in it, and we can hurt things. And also our bodies have been deprived of attributes they seem to have had in the Garden of Eden, and they decay. And so trials are sure to come. And, uh, and it's the way of understanding the, the situation of man under God that that has to be. And you know, uh, Dr. Larry Arn, the hardest trial is the loss of a child. I remember reading about Lincoln losing his son in the White House and, and the grief. Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a very fine passage on this. We reduced someone to tears. I don't think Churchill lost a child, but I, I this is he where Joe... He, he lost a little baby and a few weeks old. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So this Marigold. is very hard to say trials are for courage and for strengthening when they are the most, when they're not about you, but yeah. they're about your loved ones. That's uh, well, There's a good book by Lewis called The Problem of Pain, in which he takes that one. And then also he adds, uh, an intelligent critic brings up, what about the pain that animals suffer? What they do? What gain is there from that? And uh, Lewis's answer is that we live in a fallen world in which it is disposed that living things suffer. And they all must, and uh, all must, and some do prematurely. And so what are you to make of such a world? And the answer is it is a world full of trials, but it's also hard to think of nature, uh, of the nature in which we live as simply grim, because you and I and the people who are listening to this are having this discussion. We are interested in things that abide beyond our trials, and we can define our trials against other things that make for happiness and seem more suited to us. And so these trials can't mean that the universe is just blind and cruel. It doesn't seem to be, but it has the blindness and the cruelty in it. When we come back, we will carry on to Psalms and Isaiah, the prophets in the uh, Old Testament, as we continue our walk through one of the greatest collections of books, The Bible with Dr. Larry Arne. He's president of Hillsdale College. who walked into the middle of the Hillsdale Dialogues once a week for an hour. We go back to the stuff that matters the most, even as the students of Hillsdale College do. To read all about Hillsdale, go to hillsdale.edu. To get your hand and listen to these podcasts each week, all you need to do is sign up. They are absolutely free. They are made easily accessible to you. And there are other online courses available at Hillsdale. Your portal, hugh4hillsdale.com, H-U-G-H-F-O-R-Hillsdale.com. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arnn. Stay tuned. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arnn. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue for this week. Dr. Arnn, um, we are taping this originally in a week of extraordinary news that has a, a vector with what we're talking about. We're about to talk about the Psalms. Benedict the Sixteenth has announced he will resign this week. And he's going to retire to a monastery to be cared for by a, a cloistered group of nuns and where he will pray and meditate. And I'm sure we'll read us upon the Psalms, which is really what people do when they're serious about this. What did you make of his announcement? Uh, well, he's, you know, first of all, what a great man he is. Uh, the story of his life is uh, he's a thinker. Um, 
he was a you know since the 60s he was a very close friend of John Paul II they were young priests who were involved in Vatican II and you know between the two of them they were part of a plot to bring Catholicism to liberate Catholicism from Soviet tyranny uh, John Paul II was Polish uh, he, he's a very learned man and uh, he has written especially on moral subjects because he was the prefect of the sacred congregation of the doctrine of the faith I'm talking like I'm a Catholic now I'm not but uh, I admire these guys very much um, uh, he worked out a lot of things that have been controversial uh, during his papacy like their view the, the views of the Catholic Church on you know the great contemporary themes of homosexuality and and uh, abortion and things like that and those by the way the works that he has written about that are worth reading even if his name was Joe Blow uh, because he's a very learned man and so I can imagine you know his reading of the Psalms I wish you know it'd be fun to read them with him because <laughs> He's a very perceptive fellow. You, you mentioned C.S. Lewis wrote the only book on the Psalms that has ever really helped me. I am not one of those who find them easy or attractive. Many people do. It's just something I don't have. But uh, what's your assessment of them, and how often does Larry Arn turn to them? Uh, every day. Um, I, I, my, my way about all this is I there's some readings every day in the Anglican Church, and I read those. And, uh, of course, there's Psalms in them every day. And I've been inspired to work harder on the Psalms, because I've had some of the same thoughts you have about them, by the example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you read that good biography of him by Eric McTaxis, you'll discover that he thought the, the Psalms were prayers, and he prayed them every day, and he thought that it was, it was a mistake to make up your own prayers. You should read those prayers. And uh, so I, I try to look at it like that. And I find difficulty doing that of a kind that C.S. Lewis describes because the Psalms have certain themes in them. I mean, first of all, praise the Lord is a big theme. The mightiness, the greatness of the Lord is a big theme. The, the goodness of the Lord to us, our comforter, our protector, you know, the 23rd Psalm is very beautiful. And it's that, that's its point. But then also, the Lord will go get our enemies for us and uh, work vengeance on them and, and make them moan and whine and cry and be abject before us and cast them down into the pit. That doesn't really encourage forgiveness in the reader, does it? It's, uh, there's a problem there. And uh, Lewis talks about that problem a lot in his commentary on the Psalms. But uh, the Psalms are priceless because, you know, it's worth stepping back a second and saying that the Old Testament is understood, understands itself, to be written in three big sections. The Law is the Pentateuch, which we've just finished, and the Prophets are all these leading people, major and minor, to whom God talks. And the third thing are the Writings, and the Writings include what you could call poetry, beautiful writings, and sometimes very, very difficult to understand writings, and, and the Psalms is very much part of that. 
And then also the writings include history, the story of the Jewish people. So Judges and Kings and Chronicles are the books that deal with that. So you have to confront the fact that uh, much of the Bible is, uh, and, and by the way, of the Old Testament exclusively, well, maybe the book of Revelation, is poetic. And that means the meanings of it are beautifully and sometimes abstractly, often abstractly put, and they have to be parsed out to try to figure out what it means. When we come back, we'll talk more about that with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. We're talking about the Old Testament today and the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of which are available at HughForHillsdale.com. There's a button at HughHewitt.com. Go and pick them up weekly. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the Our American Hugh Hewitt. One segment left in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn. It occurs to me that uh, it would be a good thing for reading groups to actually grab these dialogues as prompts to their weekly meetings. Listen to them and discuss them. If you are not those who like to, to push through the pages, it's a good way to get introduced to a subject. And then the resources of Hillsdale are at your feet as well, hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, in these eight minutes, I want to kind of get us to the New Testament by focusing on what Isaiah does by way of prophecy and what the, the books of history tell us about the Jewish people moving towards uh, the year in which Christ is born. Well, um, Isaiah is, uh, so Isaiah is, you know, one of the major prophets and one of the most important prophets. And you have to, you have to think about this. The, so the, the, Jew, the, the biblical history of the Jews is about 900 years long. And for most of that, close to two-thirds of that, the, the Jews are in one of three conditions. They are disunited and at war with each other. Uh, they are subjugated, or they are their vassal states, or they are in captivity somewhere else. And so it's a pretty miserable lot being the chosen people. And uh, that's, you know, one they're, they're, they're good at it. They're the stiff-necked people, God says, but they've carried a heavy burden for us all by their own understanding and the Christian understanding. Well, the prophets are very much about that burden and about what they did to deserve it. It's like the problem of Job, and they often did things to deserve it in the understanding of the prophets. And they're about hope for the future. And Isaiah has, you know, beautiful passages about beating swords into plowshares and about the birth of a son, a Messiah, who might come and put all this to right. And the Jews, uh, one learns in the prophets, the Jews live in their captivity, holding on to their faith, despite the fact that their city is taken from them. They live in the hope of the return to Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah. You know, the very best Bible teacher I've ever had is Dennis Prager, your friend and mine. Has yeah. Dennis been to Hillsdale? Yes, yes, yes. If you ever have him there in front, ask him to explain his understanding of the Messiah, because then you'll find a Jew's Jew talking about what the Messiah means to them and how Isaiah, if we underestimate the impact he had on a people, because he, he had an enormous impact through the centuries in a way that very few books do to rally and to give a touchstone to a people that they are not abandoned and a time will come when great things will happen. A people, you know, one of the most beautiful passages is by the rivers of Babylon, you know, by the waters of Babylon, we wept. 
You know why? We wept for our city, for our home, for our people, for our ability to govern ourselves under our laws. And you know, there's uh, if you if you look at the book of Daniel and the book of uh, uh, um, Esther, I know she's uh, they're they're important and powerful figures who are heroic figures in the Jewish story, who are supplicants in a court of someone else and uh and you know that that means that they're not you know daniel would have been a great king of israel but what he was was a servant of of the occupy of the of the what is it they're captives they're in yeah. the land of babylon and so a lot of the history of the jews is like that and that means that that you know that those conditions give rise to high and tragic poetry and much of the prophets is like that and then the you know i mean it, it could, you can compare it to something modern read the work of solzhenitsyn who you know lived in the gulag and wrote about the regime that that tyrannized the russian people for three generations and there's always profound hope for him that will go away one of these days, and sure enough, it has. And, and an irrational hope in many respects. The idea that Solzhenitsyn would end up uh, addressing my commencement in 1978, I was just astonished that he got there. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't much of a speech. It was a great speech. I didn't particularly enjoy it because it was in the rain and it was in Russian. But it was a great <laughs> speech when you read it later. And that just the journey to go from the cancer ward of the gulag to addressing the West in prophetic terms does speak to the fact that things change. Dr. Arnold, we lost you? I'm here. I was just wondering if things change up at Hillsdale. Maybe they don't. Uh, uh, well, you know, we, uh, here's the point about that. Hillsdale uh, lives according to an omission from 1844. But it's a war to stay close to that mission. It's very unfashionable, and there are regulations against it. And so, yeah, they change. <laughs> Maintaining constancy is a constant fight. Can you interest your students in the Old Testament, those who are not religious, those who do not read it as a matter of course? What do they look at you and say, why are we reading this book? Well, the answer is yes to a person, and for two reasons. One is there aren't very many of them that are not religion, religious, Christians. There's some Jews here, too, and they tend to be very faithful ones. But... The second reason is, we the, the Bible is an incredibly interesting thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> what what else is there like it? And you know, by the way, it, 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 the the name of the Bible is it means the book. It is the book, right? And has been understood to be that in the Western canon for two thousand years more. So, if you can't read the Bible and see that it is a profound and compelling thing, then you can't read. Doesn't it erode your central mission of Solomon, the wisest man of the era of the time, himself falls and fails? So isn't that what you're trying to do inevitably doomed? Well, only God can make it right. And the returning back to God is the solution to our fallenness. So that's, 
you know, there's hardly a, a biblical story of which that's not the point. No, that is the point. Next week, we're coming back and doing the New Testament with Dr. Larry Arn, uh, and we will be doing that in two weeks over the Gospels in the first week and the letters and Revelation in the second week. Do not miss those Hillsdale Dialogues. And thank you, Dr. Larry Arn. I remind everyone, you can pick up your Hillsdale Dialogues just by going to hughforhillsdale.com or going directly to hillsdale.edu, or all of it is collected with easy buttons at Hugh Hewitt.com. I come back with Tarzana Joe to complete this week. Thank you, Larry Arn. Stay tuned.